Well, welcome to Easter Sunday, the one day of the year where we as Christians straight up acknowledge we've lost our minds. I mean, of course we have. How else do you explain a Jewish peasant dying and rising to life? How else do you explain a Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, not being just a man, but God in the flesh, crucified, dead for three days, resurrected? How else do you explain the belief that this Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven and he is Lord over the whole universe? Yes, on Easter Sunday, we can take a deep breath and say, yep, we've lost our minds. Now, if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm sure you may think so too. Like this, this Christian belief in the resurrection, it's a little out there. It's a little far-stretched. Uh, dead stuff stays dead after all. We get this. This is empirically provable. Dead stuff, when it's dead, it's dead. Uh, and, and most of the time, there's not many exceptions. Like, someone can die, and within a, a time frame, we can uh, resuscitate them with medical intervention. But other than that, uh, our categories for dealing with resurrection are just in the realm of fiction. Frankenstein, you know, dead to life. Uh, for those of you who like The Walking Dead, you know, zombies, uh, dead to sort of life, you know, like quasi-life. No wonder... When we talk about resurrection, people say the resurrection is a myth. The only realm we have to deal with this thinking is fiction. And it's usually gruesome monster fiction. So why can't Christians let the resurrection go? The fact that dead people don't ordinarily rise is actually a part of the Christian faith. Uh, the claim, you know, this can't happen as an objection to Christianity is actually written into our scriptures. The apostles struggled with this truth themselves. Dead stuff stays dead. But when Christians talk about resurrection, we're not talking about Frankenstein or zombies. We're not talking about a quasi-life or life but less than what the life was before. We're talking about a completely different sort of life. We're talking about a different sort of endurance and quality. We're talking about eternal life that is no longer marred by sin and broken by death. And we're talking about a life that resurrects within us and transforms us in the here and now. Life that overcame the grave and the tomb. And it's the tomb that I want to talk about this morning. It's the tomb we take issue with. It's the tomb that we talk about on Easter Sunday, the tomb of Jesus Christ. So first, I want to look at an eyewitness account of the empty tomb. I want to look at a few ways that we respond to that account. And then I want to talk about why Christians just can't let the resurrection go. So the empty tomb, how we respond, and why we can't let it go. Any regulars here at St. Peter's know at this point, every sermon I say, open your Bibles with me, and then I say the passage. There's a bit of a problem with that, isn't there? How, why should we trust anything the Bible has to say about the resurrection? Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, he says, accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Just to note, he is an evolutionary biologist, clearly not a historian. Uh, the Gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament uh, can best be described as historical eyewitness testimony, not fictitious fairy tales. Let's take Luke as, a, as an example. Luke didn't write his gospel because he thought it would be a fun thing to do. He didn't sit down and think, you know, I just want to write thousands of words on a parchment and then uh, make it into a Bible. This, this wasn't on Luke's mind. In the beginning of his own gospel, he writes in verse 1, Inasmuch as many 
have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke is recognizing lots of people have been writing down this event. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke was commissioned to write his gospel. He was commissioned by a Roman aristocrat, uh, a, a man who was actually skeptical about the life and death of Jesus. And, and, and he wanted Luke to write down what had happened, write down the research so that he could have more certainty about what he was hearing about Jesus. And Luke assures Theophilus that he did the research. He's been following this for a long time. He's been talking to the eyewitnesses. He's been corroborating what they said. Luke On his own terms, we see uh, that the Gospels aren't a fabrication. They're not myth. They are well-researched records of what people witnessed and saw concerning the living and breathing Jesus of Nazareth. And not only are the Gospels trustworthy eyewitness testimony from multiple sources confirming the same event, uh, but they stand up to scrutiny. The New Testament, uh, written between 50 AD and 100 AD is unrivaled compared to any other ancient text. Uh, we, we have a little infographic here that you won't be able to read at all. We'll put it on the internet afterwards. But we have 20,000 of the earliest surviving copies of the New Testament that are dated to 40 to 70 years within the original writings. Now that doesn't sound all that impressive. 20,000 copies, but they're only you know, 40 to 7 years from when we had the original writings. It's impressive once you realize the Iliad by Homer is the next closest documented text that we have with a mere 643 copies, 500 years from when it was written. The New Testament is unrivaled compared to other ancient documents. There is more historical evidence for the person of Jesus Christ than there is for Plato, Aristotle, or Caesar combined. So, If we drop the baggage that the word scripture can carry, and let's be honest, the word scripture or the Bible carries a lot of baggage. And we look at the Gospels as consistent, historically validated eyewitness testimony to an event within history, we have a lot to discover. I want to ask you to do something with me this morning. Take any skepticism you may have any preloaded arguments and reasons as to why you don't believe, and just put it on hold for 30 minutes. And try to hear the historical eyewitness testimony of Jesus' empty tomb just on its own terms. Now, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. That doesn't count as sermon time, just so you're you're aware. (laughs) Luke, the historian, writes in verse 1, but on the first day... On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. We're entering into the last chapter of Luke's gospel. Uh, And as we begin chapter 24, Jesus has been crucified. He's buried in a tomb and he has been dead for three days. But Luke wants us to know that while it was a tragic event, it's not a tragedy. It's precisely what Jesus came to do. Verse 1 lets us know that a new week has begun. 
dawn has cracked and a group of women are headed to the tomb. And we learn in verse 10 that this, uh, this group of women are composed of, of people that Luke names by name. Mary Magdalene, who was not Jesus' wife, in case you're wondering. Uh, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and a few other women. What we're reading is what they saw, what they witnessed, what they reported to Luke and to others. They're headed to the tomb to complete Jesus' burial process. And this entire passage, we will see, revolves around the central location, the tomb, the place of the dead, the place where Jesus' mangled, crucified body was stored. But as they get to the tomb, things aren't as they should be. Look at verses 2 through 7. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, because yes, this would be perplexing, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, bound their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. Before they can wrap their heads around an empty tomb, before they can dwell long in their um, perplexity, shiny men show up. I'm not sure this helped the situation initially. I'm not sure it helps a lot of us here. You might be thinking, well, this is why I don't believe the Gospels. Angels. But angels are not a normative way in the Scriptures of how God communicates with His people. It is rare, and there is a common response when angels show up. It's not like the Hallmark cards where everyone's happy and there's an angel. If there was a face that best captured angels showing up, it would be this, you know, it's a scary event. No one ever is expecting an angel to show up. These angels show up and they have a message for the women. You're forgetting what Jesus said would happen. You're forgetting. And in forgetting, you're rewriting the story. And they rewrote the story by leaving out the parts that didn't make sense to them. The messengers ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, they respond, well, it's kind of where we put the body last. Well, he's not here. He's risen. Remember, he said he would rise. In the Gospels, Jesus tells his closest followers three distinct times, at the very least, that this is going to happen. This is where the story was going. He would be crucified and he would rise. And every time, they couldn't wrap their heads around what he was saying. It seemed nonsensical. Dead stuff stays dead. What on earth could he be talking about? The problem is, they came to the tomb expecting a body to be there when Jesus told them there would be no body. So this is fundamentally an act of disbelief. Jesus being crucified, they could wrap their heads around that much. They saw it happen, but Jesus resurrecting from the dead It's easier just to leave this whole resurrection thing out. And we get this. We leave out parts of our own stories all the time when we tell stories. I often like to tell people, whether they ask me or not, well, yes, I've been to Mount Sinai. And and it was beautiful. You know, I I stood where Moses and the Israelites stood. And uh, now I have this geographical imagination when I read the scriptures. And it was beautiful. But the best part, when we were on the top of the mountain, as as the sun was rising, a group of nuns started singing a song, but they were singing in a different language, I think Korean. Um, And we could tell from the melody, it was how great thou art. 
And then another group over there, you know, started singing along in Spanish. And then our group started singing along in English. And there we are on the top of Mount Sinai, singing in multiple languages, praising God as the sun rises on Mount Sinai of all places. I mean, breathtaking. I love telling that story. The only problem is I'm leaving a whole lot out. If you were to ask Julia, my wife, or some of our friends that were with us, you'd get a very different story of what occurred to Alistair Stern on the top of Mount Sinai. I ran into an old friend. Uh, his name, Montezuma. His agenda, revenge. If you don't know what Montezuma's revenge is, don't Google it. Um, it just came out of nowhere. And, and, and my, then we have to hike down a mountain, right? Imagine this. Yeah, I hike down a mountain, like three to four hours, and my blood sugar levels got all crazy. And like my arms started getting all stiff. And I literally had to put my whole weight onto Julia. And those of you who know Julia, she's like half my size. Miraculous event alone, the fact that she carried me. And then I always leave out the part that we finally get to our hotel room. And I go into the shower and I just weep. Like, like just uncontrollable weeping. No, no, no. When I went to Mount Sinai, I was at the top of a mountain singing with nuns. We get it. We leave out parts of stories. And this is often how we uh, respond to the resurrection. We rewrite it. We try to make it more digestible to our senses. Most commonly, people will deal with it this way. Well, it's a fabrication. The disciples must have stolen the body to concoct a resurrection story. But if the disciples were going to write a fake story, if Luke was going to make up a story, this isn't how they would tell it. Women wouldn't have been the first to find the empty tomb. Celsus, he was a Greek philosopher. Uh, he lived in the uh, second century. He was very antagonistic towards Christianity. We have a lot of his writings in which he opposes the Christian faith. And he writes this, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know, Women are hysterical. <laughs> Clearly, Celsus had a way with the ladies. Uh, I hear he was single his whole life. Uh, I don't know. It's probably not true, but it's probably true. Women in the New Testament's culture and time and place, unfortunately, had a very low uh, social standing. They couldn't even testify in court. Celsus, he looks at the Christian scriptures and he sees them as historical eyewitness testimony. He just says, you can't trust the testimony because it says that women found the body and you can't trust women. If Luke was going to fabricate a story, he would have cut this detail out, but he keeps it in because this is what actually took place. He doesn't try to make the story more sellable or sensible. He tells it as it happened. Women found the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, and some other women. Why is it that we try to rewrite this story? I think we just don't like the resurrection being presented as a historical fact. Because empirically we know dead stuff stays dead. Uh, we don't like it because if the resurrection is a historical fact, then it can't be relegated to the corridors of personal opinion. If it actually took place within history, then it impacts our lives. And so we write it, rewrite the story because we don't want it to impact our lives. Jesus, he was a nice guy, a good teacher, but resurrection, re uh, ugh, we leave that part out. The earliest followers of Jesus, his own disciples, tried to rewrite the story simply by forgetting what 
he said. But they soon discover that rewriting it doesn't change what happened. This group of women at an empty tomb come to see with their own eyes that Jesus really is risen. That his dead body is nowhere to be found because he said he would rise. Look at verse 8. Luke writes, And they remembered Jesus' words. They remember that Jesus would rise, and he did, and they discover this for themselves. And so they rush back from the tomb to announce it to the disciples. Here we have the first proclamation of the gospel. And notice how this, the frame of reference is still the tomb. Luke isn't concerned about where they've gone to. He's concerned about where they were. The tomb is still the central piece of this text. Luke really wants us to deal with the historical truth. The tomb was empty. Now imagine the scene with me. In a hyper-patriarchal society where women can't even testify in court, a group of women come bursting into a room. And they look a little crazed. They've been at a tomb with spices to anoint a dead body, and now they seem a little excited and and a little flustered, and then they say to you, he's alive, he's alive, he is risen. Who's alive? Jesus, he's he's risen. Well, how would you respond? How, How did you respond the very first time you ever heard the Christian story that Jesus died, was crucified, and resurrected three days later? Oh, piously, of course, right? Like, yes, of course, this is what God would do. He would incarnate and become man, fully God, fully human, and he would die for the sins of the world, and he would be in the grave three days, and then he would resurrect. Yes, of course, this is truth. It would be a very pious answer, but it's not how anyone responds when they hear the resurrection. Look at how the disciples respond in verse 11. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Jesus' own followers, those closest to him, those who spent three years with him, those who heard him say, I will die and I will rise, when they hear that he has risen, they call a spade a spade, and they say it's idle tales. Translators uh, are protecting us here, and it's a shame. Uh, the Greek word is leros. Try it with me, leros. It'll be important. You'll see why. Um, Leros in the Greek is better described as garbage, dribble, nonsense. Or as New Testament scholar Anna Florence Carter suggests, the disciples are really saying that the whole story is BS. It's bullshit. That's the response. And that's more like it, isn't it? When we hear about the resurrection, that's how we respond. You're out of your mind. Leros, like this is Leros. Jesus' closest followers um, didn't believe the resurrection happened because it was too out there. It's just too out there. And here's the truth. The resurrection isn't tame when we talk about it. If it doesn't sound implausible, if it doesn't make us sound like we're somehow out of our minds, if it doesn't make people initially want to reject it because it is too extraordinary, then I would suggest that we are not actually proclaiming the resurrection at all. Because the resurrection is not tame. And because the resurrection makes our world crumble if it's true. All of our categories of how the world functions fall apart. Idle tales. Layros. They all said it. His closest followers. 
Yet look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Earlier, I asked us all to suspend our cynicism for a moment. Because that's what Peter does. He's among the group of people who are saying idle tales, Lairos. Yet he still gets up and he runs to the tomb. He doesn't walk at a brisk pace. He sprints to the tomb. He has to find out if it is true. Because if it is true, nothing can stay the same. You have to find out. And that's why Peter runs. He throws all of himself and all of his energy into finding out if this account and this testimony, this eyewitness testimony of an empty tomb is true. He retraces the women's steps. And when he gets to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, he... He goes to the empty tomb and and he marvels. And while we're thousands of years away from this empty tomb, uh, that's what happens to each of us when we begin to encounter it, isn't it? You might read the Gospels for yourself for the first time and think, how do I make sense of this? You might finally read a book on the history of the resurrection and think, if this is true, what do I do with my life? You might finally sit down with a family member or a friend over coffee and and hear about why they believe in the resurrection and how they've encountered the risen Christ and and you start to marvel. Of course you marvel because if, if dead stuff comes back to life, the whole world changes. Nothing can be the same. If Jesus isn't found among the dead but is living, how can you let that go? If Jesus is really resurrected, it is not just a part of the unfolding drama of human history. It is the central moment of human history. I mentioned that a few years ago, Julia and I went to Mount Sinai. And on that trip, we also went to Israel. And when you're in the Holy Land, expectations are running pretty high. You know, uh, this is like a big deal. People, they just expect that they're going to be having spiritual experience after spiritual experience. And the truth is, they do. You know, a lot of people are are just amazed. You know, epiphanies on top of Mount Sinai. Of course, that was a little different for me. Um, Light bulbs going off when you're at the Sea of, of Galilee. Oh, it's so beautiful. Peter tried to walk on the water here. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, the pain, right? Like Jesus wrestled here. People are having amazing, like, just spiritual moments. But for Julia, nothing. The whole trip, nothing. Just felt like Jesus was nowhere to be found. And it was hard for her because people are in this cloud nine of religious experience. And for her, nothing. No encounters, just rocks and water and places. But she was in Israel and, and she was walking where Jesus walked and she was touching things that Jesus probably touched. But nothing. On our last day, We went to two more sites. Uh, Both are contenders for where people think that Jesus was possibly buried. Uh, The first is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's it's an Orthodox church. There's actually uh, several Christian groups in it. It's stunning architecture. It's amazing. It's an experience. And then the second option is a modest tomb in a garden down the street. And frankly, if either one of them are where Jesus was buried, I think it's the latter. This is an actual photo of that, that tomb. And... We went to this tomb. It was the last thing we were doing in Israel before heading to uh, the airport. And Julia, she was feeling especially discouraged this day because it seemed like it was too late. And when you go to this tomb, you're only allowed one person to go in at a time. So 
you know, I went in first and I walked around and was like, yep, it's a tomb. And I, I came out and, and Julia goes in and it just takes a while, a long while. And then she comes bursting out full of joy, yelling, he is risen, he is risen. And, and this wasn't just dramatic reenactment, even though Julia was a drama kid. Um, something clicked in the tomb for Julia. On the way out, she saw a sign from heaven. No, no, there was a, a wooden sign um, <laughs> plastered on the wall. And it read, he's not here. He's risen. Jesus isn't found in the tomb or on a religious holiday, per se. Her encounter with Jesus wasn't brought about by some geography or ancient relic, but by the truth that the tomb is empty. (coughs) What's so powerful, then, about the empty tomb? Jesus isn't there. I've been driving the point home that this is a historical fact. But here's what's most important. This isn't something that just happened as a part of history. The scriptures say that this is something that had to happen within history. Which is exactly what the messenger said to the women. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. It must happen. Jesus' last few days on earth wasn't just a series of unfortunate events. It wasn't that things just suddenly started going south. Um, When he was handed over, when he was mocked, when he was spit upon, when he had uh, just a fake system of justice condemn him, when he was tortured when he was crucified. This was not just a series of unfortunate events. If it was, if Luke's gospel ended in chapter 23, the only place you would find Jesus is in a tomb or in a textbook. But the cross is not the result of a series of unfortunate events. That's the beautiful power that we remember on Easter. The resurrection shows us that something bigger was going on, that God was up to something that nobody expected. He was defeating the power that sin has on our lives. Sin, that proclivity for us to always do the things that we don't want to do or to intentionally do the things that we know we shouldn't do or to say the things that we didn't want to say or to to continue to just struggle day in and day out. Jesus came to defeat the power that sin had over us. He came to defeat the power that sin had to separate us from God. He came to defeat the power of evil. He came to throw down Satan from the authority he has in the world. He came to defeat death. He came so that death would no longer have a sting over humanity. And just so we can know with certainty that everything I just said is true, resurrection comes bursting out of the tomb. Jesus left death in his grave. Resurrection comes to people whose hearts were broken, whose hands were full of spices to anoint the dead, who thought all was lost. And resurrection proclaims that sin and suffering and evil and all the things that are broken in the world do not have the final say. Jesus does. Jesus has the final say because the the resurrection proclaims that Jesus is the victor 
And his victory is surprising and it's stunning and it's beautiful and it's hard to comprehend, but it changes everything because if Jesus is alive, nothing can stay the same. What holds power then over our lives is not sin. It's not suffering. It's not tragedy. It's not struggle. It's not even death. What holds power over our lives is Jesus Christ because he is truly God. He is truly alive. He truly reigns and he is truly Lord over the universe and he gives victory over all of these things to those who put their faith and trust that the, in him, that the tomb is empty, that he really did rise. That's why Christians can't let the resurrection go. Now the empty tomb, it pushes us, each of us, beyond simply agreeing or nodding our heads. No, we have to know it for ourselves. And we can. We actually can encounter Jesus because Jesus is alive and he is well and he is reigning over and over again in the Gospels. His people encounter him. Peter encounters the risen Christ on a, on a shore over breakfast. Others encounter him in a garden. Uh, some encounter him on a walk on the road. Some encounter him in a room. Uh, but they encounter him. Then thousands of others encounter him as these very people, both men and women, go out into the world and proclaim his death and resurrection. And this hasn't changed. You can ask anyone in this room who, who believes in Jesus about how they encountered him, and you will hear a thousand different stories. It might have been a book, a conversation, a movie, a lecture, through caring for the poor, a sermon, uh, in a small group or a spiritual encounter. But all of them in some way or form have encountered the risen Christ because it's precisely because Jesus resurrected and is now ascended and reigning over the world that we find him everywhere and anywhere but not in his tomb. So let me ask you, are you running to find out if this is true? Is he a living Lord for you? Have you encountered the resurrection in such a way that you just can't let it go?